ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live and we've got the best show ever for you today. Ever. If you want to join in the conversation, we invite you to participate with your comments and questions on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of amazing medical topics. That is right. We've got some curious medical headlines ripped from the papers. I ripped one now. You just ripped our headline. Uh, these headlines will make you definitely go, hmm. And we have a special hmm. update with NeuroFrontiers host Dr. Anthony Alessi, who is currently in Haiti. Back in February, Dr. Alessi updated us on the recovery and triage efforts underway during his first trip. Now, six months later, he's back in Port-au-Prince, and we'll be hearing from him about the progress towards rebuilding lives and infrastructure there. Also, our guest this week is Dr. Andrew Wakefield, one of the most recognized and controversial figures in medicine today. Dr. Wakefield is an academic gastroenterologist and researcher from England. Back in 1998, he published an article in The Lancet linking autism and vaccines. This research later contributed to having his medical license taken away by the British Medical Council. We're going to talk to him about the controversy and his continuing work. If you want to join us in this conversation, and it's going to be a fascinating one, call in or email. Our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Call us now. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. Or hit us on the web at Facebook or Twitter. Well, don't actually hit us, but uh, do stay tuned to this week's Second Opinion Live. Again, our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. Call us. That's 888-631-7322 for all you smartphone users out there. Give us a call. All right. First up, let's go to the newspapers for some curious headlines. So, Matt... What have you seen lately that's caught your attention besides the funny papers? Well, aside from the one that you just ripped, I've got a great success story here from the Washington Post about the paired organ donation exchange system at Georgetown. And I'll uh, throw it at you as a curious headline, but I have to admit this is more inspirational and heartwarming than curious. Unfortunately, (laughs) it all does start with a tragic car accident that killed a 24-year-old woman in Florida. Uh, That is not inspiring and heartwarming. Uh, No, not at all. I'm definitely starting off behind the count here, but... Stay with me on this one. So um, the mother of this young woman who died decided to donate her daughter's organs, and a national kidney registry found a recipient in Maryland. Now, the recipient's husband had at one point offered to give his wife a kidney, only he wasn't a match. So he joins the paired kidney exchange pool organized by Georgetown and some adjacent hospitals. Now, that system works on pairing unrelated donors with cross-matched blood types for their partners so that each donor ultimately contributes to his or her partner's transplantation. But in this case, when the man on the list saw his wife get a kidney from the deceased donor, he could have left the list, except that he didn't. You mean he stayed on the list to give it to somebody else? (laughs) He did stay on the list. Awesome. And about two weeks later, he donates a kidney to a taxi driver in Maryland, and the taxi driver's wife then donates a kidney to a woman in Virginia, and the chain goes on and on and on, Michael, until there were 14 kidney transplants between 28 people in about a month's time. This, this is a beautiful story, an mm-hmm. amazing turnaround, especially since the first donor could have just pulled himself off the list from the start. And I wonder how many of us would have done that. Yeah. I think this guy, it was a beautiful gesture for it's all amazing. these people. And one good turn definitely deserves another, right? I mean, it's a great story. I hope that it'll drive more people to register for paired exchange systems down the road. And there's actually been a number of regional accounts like these in the past year, which has inspired a national pool to launch in the fall. I had never heard about that. That's yeah. great news, Matt. We'll have to follow up on the registry when it launches. Okay, here's a story reported a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times. 
Johns Hopkins professors claim that they've located a depiction of the brain and brainstem in Michelangelo's painting on the <laughs> ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I thought they had my face up there. Drawn into the neck of God. I thought that was your face. Yeah, no, that's the, <laughs> no, this, this in the May issue of the journal Neurosurgery. The image in the panel is known as the separation of light from darkness, one of nine scenes in the book of Genesis. In this one, God is wearing jeans. No, he's wearing flowing red robes and seems to be ascending toward the sky with his arms over his head and his head turned to the right, his neck and the brain stem exposed. And the authors of this study are medical illustrators Ian Souk and Dr. Rafael J. Tamargo, a neurosurgeon. I've seen the pictures and... It looks like a brainstem. It's, it's seriously. <laughs> it really does when they depict it. And Michelangelo was a student of anatomy. He started dissecting cadavers when he was 17 years old. So I wouldn't be surprised if he put that in there because, you know, such pictures are often hidden by artists like that. They had to do it latently, didn't they? Because it wasn't accepted at the time. Exactly. Right? Looking at uh, corpses and doing anatomy. I, I think the producer should send us to the Vatican, to the Sistine Chapel, so we can look for ourselves. <laughs> well, it's not a bad expense. We'll just put it on the invoice. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, with that, that, why don't we move on to the bigger picture issues in medicine today? And it doesn't get any more relevant than the continuing rehabilitation efforts in Haiti. We have Dr. Anthony Alessi on the line from Port-au-Prince. Dr. Alessi is the host of NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, and he's returned to Haiti to continue the work he started six months ago, right after the earthquake. Dr. Alessi, uh, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. Oh, great. It's good to hear you. So listen, you know, it's, it's been months now since we've talked about Haiti. Tell us what's going on. It seems like the shift of the world has changed. A lot of money has been collected, but there's increasing frustration, not only from the Haitians, but the people on the ground here, that so much money has been collected, and so little of it actually spent on improving the plight of the Haitian people right now. So a lot of people have taken the money and using it for trying to get a big picture idea of how to change the country, but so many people are still living in tents in absolutely deplorable conditions here in Port-au-Prince. So how could we get the money to the people? Can we donate to organizations like yours directly, or should we give it in general to the Red Cross? Absolutely. Two ideal situations are the one I'm in here, if people went to CompassionWeavers.org, and you could also, if you want to write, you could really donate online or go to St. Paul's Benevolent Foundation. Father Rick Fouchette, who is a physician, an osteopathic physician, as well as a priest, has been here since 1987, and there are dramatic changes here at this health facility because every dollar that comes here gets used to improve the plight of the Haitian people. You can I look around now, and in the past six months, tremendous changes. He just opened an adult family health center. Now, it's a family health hospital, almost like a community hospital. He's already ordered, and is coming from Europe, prefabricated operating rooms to open a trauma center along with uh, outpatient surgery center. So all the money is being spent. He just opened yesterday doing adult surgeries, do the surgeries at the pediatric hospital that's also part of the complex down the street in the evening after the pediatric surgeries. At night, they recover overnight at the pediatric hospital. And then early this morning, they would put the patients actually on the gurneys in the back of the truck and bring them to the adult facility. It's the family, I'll tell you a story. It, it happened this morning that stresses the point of it being a family hospital. We transported one patient, and the families actually get in to help us transport them in the back of the truck. 
after we dropped off the first two patients, we had to go back and pick up another patient. And we see the fellow who just got off getting back on the truck. And, and we looked at him, and he said, well, you brought my wife, but now I have to go help you bring the other person. And that's what I mean. That's the Haitian spirit. That's the Haitian people. They're out to work with their fellow countrymen. And that's why it's being called a family health center and a family trauma center. How's the general standard of living now? I mean, is there water and more food supplies coming in for the average person in Haiti? I don't think so, overall. I think that, you know, they're trying to get it here. Uh, today, again, Father Rick spent money and got 500 bags of rice that immediately get distributed. They're getting shipping containers in, but these are direct donations. What we have are a lot of big foundations where a lot of people gave all their money, and they're trying to get this big-picture idea on how to spend what's really estimated as being a trillion dollars. But it doesn't really help the day-to-day life of these folks who still live in tents. Now, can you imagine? It's so hot here. I know we're going through a heat wave on the East Coast. But imagine no air conditioning, and at night, absolute torrential rain. I've never seen anything like it. Every night and every afternoon, even right now, the clouds are darkening up. There are electric storms and downpours. At, at night, you lie in bed or, and just think about these poor people in tents, and that's their life from day to day. I'm here a week. This is just a sprint for me. This is day to day for them. So we haven't made any progress in getting more permanent housing, despite what the United Nations says. Are you disheartened that it seems like the world has kind of forgotten Haiti? We're more interested now in oil in the Gulf and all these other issues, and Haiti doesn't seem to be popping up on the radar screens anymore. Isn't it amazing? We're only six months into one of the greatest disasters known to man in really the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, and people have forgotten these folks already. All right, so our listeners are listening now. The take-home message Give money directly to organizations for food and health care, not give it to the big organizations and check on that first. And most importantly, keep giving. It's not over. Absolutely not over. And just give to an organization that you can be sure that every cent of that dollar is getting to the Haitian people, not paying huge administrative costs or in the case of CompassionLeavers.com, no money goes through administrative costs, zero. I think that's a great message. So, Dr. Lessie, uh, you're going to be there for a week, is that right? I will. And uh, what are your day-to-day activities going to be? Uh, my daughter came down with me. She's finishing. She's just completed her first year of medical school at St. George's University in the Caribbean. She'd been here twice before, actually spent six weeks getting her master's degree, doing a practicum for a master's degree in public health. Our day-to-day, we're up early, and we all attend mass in the morning, and then uh, go off. I'm working primarily in a neurologic rehabilitation center called Kai St. Germain, or the House of St. Germain, and it is the only neurologic rehabilitation facility for children in the country, and it's absolutely free. It's an outpatient facility where they have wonderful, wonderful facilities and therapists working with the really the most severely affected children with cerebral palsy, hydrocephalus, and now it's expanded to seeing more who have been affected by the earthquake and amputees. There's now an adult program here. So, again, they're doing wonderful things with the money. We see 40 to 50 patients a day. They're coming from all over. And, really, the patient load is tripled because so many hospitals and other facilities were destroyed with the earthquake. Yeah. So there are fewer facilities 
and more patients. Yeah, Dr. Lassie, unfortunately, we have to let you go at this point for time, but thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And please, to all of our listeners, the message from Dr. Lassie is that the crisis in Haiti is far from over. It's just started. Please send your money, send what you can, but get it directly to the people. So thank you for that message. Thank you very much for keeping the message out there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's turn now to this week's guest, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Dr. Wakefield is a gastroenterologist and researcher from England who became widely known for the controversial position that MMR vaccines caused autism. His research and views led to wide-scale public support while drawing sharp criticism from medical communities. Dr. Wakefield lives and works in the U.S., and he's just published a book about his experiences called Callous Disregard, Autism and Vaccines, the Truth Behind Tragedy. Dr. Wakefield, thanks for joining us on Second Opinion Live. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Dr. Wakefield, you're at the center of a controversy in medicine that's decades long, but you just had your British credentials pulled. What does that do to your quest, to your your vision here? Just to correct, the credentials have not yet been pulled because it's subject to an appeal, but in principle, uh, you're quite right. What does it do? Well, I think that in the end, it strengthens my resolve since... Um, I've just learned two days ago that the chairman of the panel, the senior judge, if you like, who oversaw the case and um, found us guilty of, uh, of callous disregard, um, amongst other things, um, has just declared his position to a national meeting of doctors on vaccination. And he has taken a very radical stance, which is to ask for the enforcement of vaccination in the UK. Now, fortunately, that was rejected by the assembled company. But um, this position, which he has clearly held for some time, was not disclosed before he took up the post as judge uh, ruling on us. And that is somewhat extraordinary. How many judges are on the panel? Five. There were uh, three doctors and two lay people. And how many voted to have your credentials pulled? Was it unanimous or was it... I don't know. You see, we never get to find out that decision. But uh, we just don't know the answer to that. But he, has, he, as chairman, was clearly in a very, very strong position to influence events. So, Dr. Wakefield, it's not outlandish, and we thank you for coming on to a channel, especially given our particular niche audience, but it's not outlandish to say that the majority of our target listenership, they're not very sympathetic to the cause of which you've outlined. But this is an opportunity, I think, for you to address the healthcare professionals directly. So the question that I have for you is, what is the message that you most want to convey to the medical community? Because this is really... I guess there are 15 minutes of spotlight for that particular group. Well, I'm, I'm a, a, just a straightforward academic gastroenterologist, formally trained. I'm entirely mainstream. I've published a lot of papers. And I was presented with a clinical problem and a moral conundrum, and that is that uh, children, normally developing children, presented to me with a story of regression following a vaccine. Had those children regressed following uh, natural chicken pox that they caught from a child at a birthday party, then you and I would not be speaking now. That would be seen as a um, uh, something of medical interest that needed to be investigated as a matter of urgency. However, since it was a vaccine, it was um, it was forbidden to even discuss it. In fact, my colleague said to me at the time, we cannot be seen to question the safety of MMR vaccine as pediatricians. Now, that makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever, either professionally or in any scientific terms. If there is an adverse reaction or a possible adverse reaction, then that must be investigated to the best of our ability. And that is simply what we did. We did not say there's a causal relationship uh, between this vaccine and the disorder. What we said is this is the parent's story. This needs to be thoroughly investigated because it's not only consistent, 
but it's biologically plausible. And the idea that this is coincidence, uh, merely occurring at the same time that uh, autism is diagnosed and children get their vaccine, is a position that you can only arrive at after due diligence, after thorough medical investigation, and that is what we did. What we discovered, in fact, as we went through it, is that because the government in the UK had underwritten the liability of the vaccine manufacturer, SmithKline Beecham, uh, to introduce a dirty, unsafe MMR vaccine that was cheaper than Merck's MMR2 into the UK, that in fact it was the government that was on the hook to be sued for this vaccine. And that deal that was done between them was a secret. They've attempted to keep it a secret. And a government insider, if you've read the book, you'll know this, a government insider revealed this to me um, halfway through my work, that in fact they had ignored his advice to introduce, not to introduce this dangerous vaccine that had already been banned in Canada. And uh, it was introduced, um, putting the cost of this vaccine before the safety of children. And that, I'm afraid, reflects the perception of the British authorities on safety of children. And that was sufficient imperative for me to continue in the face of the uh, emerging science. Yes, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on Reach MDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Wakefield, the doctor at the center of the last several years controversy about vaccines and autism. He has a new book that we're talking about today. So, Dr. Wakefield, I think it's really interesting how you phrased it. You said that in the wake of this potential government conspiracy that there was the element of putting a competing interest in front of children's safety. And I think a lot of our listeners would use that exact same language when they're speaking about how they refer to what you have done in reference to the research you've done, that there was an element of competing interests that went ahead of children's safety. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm not sure what the competing interest was. Um, I got into this because parents posed the question to me, and I felt that I had a moral obligation to answer it. Um, Halfway through the work, I was asked if I would get involved in vaccine litigation, particularly in relation to Crohn's disease initially and autism later. And I agreed to do that for moral and professional reasons on the basis that, particularly for the autism community, when their parents become infirm or die, there's no one to look after these children. There's an epidemic of the disorder and no one to care for them. They're going to die on the streets. And so I felt I had an obligation to do that. There was no secret. It's widely reported in the national newspapers. Um, So any claims that this was non-disclosed or a secret, I'm afraid, are false. Well, on that note, how do you respond to those people who said, well, you received over half a million dollars for this that was not disclosed and that you had applied for a patent before a safer vaccine came out? How do you respond to people who say, well, this was all about financial interests of yours? No, well, I was taken on as a medical expert. I worked for nine years as a medical expert, um, as many, many doctors do, um, operating, working for standard rates. Um, but the, but the money came, no the money came from attorneys, doctor. It was, discla- it was disclosed throughout. There was no situation in which that funding was not appropriately disclosed. Uh, all right, but how and you- I can cite the, the, the publications in which it was disclosed, but I made nothing from that. Let me make it quite clear. Well, that money was donated to an initiative to build a new center for gastroenterology and research at the Royal Free Hospital. And uh, none of that money went to me personally. Well, even if the it money did... that was not disclosed 
in the Lancet paper, because it was not relevant to the Lancet paper, was a research grant. Not money for me, but a research grant to the medical school to investigate whether measles virus was persistent in the intestine of children with autism and inflammatory bowel disease. But the literature is rife with accusations that the money came from attorneys, from malpractice attorneys. How do you respond to that? No, the uh, funding came from a government body, a government-funded body called the Legal Aid Board. And the Legal Aid Board funds litigation in situations where children uh, or people who have no resources uh, are deemed to have a case in law. And the study that they funded was a research study into whether there was a uh, merit to a case to determine whether MMR vaccine was in fact a proximate cause of autism. That is what the funding was for. And that competing interest was disclosed in the appropriate, uh, at the appropriate time. Now, what has appeared in the media, I'm afraid, is an extravagant public relations exercise driven largely by a single freelance journalist who just got it very, very badly wrong. And that is covered extensively in my book. Well, why don't we step away from the question of money, because that has circulated and recirculated over and over. But one thing that comes up a lot among our listenership is the question that as you've stood out there on this platform for looking at autism and for treating autism, many of the pediatricians, immunologists, ID specialists out there would claim that your outspoken views boosted an anti-vaccination movement that subsequently contributed to several fatal outbreaks of preventable diseases. How do you respond to that claim? Because it's very vehement when people say that they feel that you're in part, if not centrally responsible for later outbreaks over the past 10 years uh, across the world. How do you respond to that? Well, firstly, um, I respond to that by saying that I never said told parents not to vaccinate. I always strongly urged vaccination. Having done uh, thorough research into every paper that had been published on MMR and measles vaccine safety, I wrote a a 250-page report, which was concordant with the uh, recent um, report from from the Cochrane Foundation, which said that the safety studies of MMR vaccine, both pre- and post-licensing, were largely inadequate, particularly compared with those of the single vaccine. And I suggested that parents, in uh, 1998, I suggested that parents might have the uh, opt for the single vaccines to protect their children, but not to um, not vaccinate. And uh, what happened six months later in the UK, when the demand for single vaccines was at its greatest, the British government decided to withdraw the importation license for the single vaccine. In other words, at a time when the demand was greatest, they took away the choice for parents. And so the parents rightly concerned about the safety of MMR vaccine could no longer obtain the single vaccines. And that's when measles came back. And so the responsibility for the reemergence of measles in the UK lies entirely at the hands of the British government who withdrew the importation license for the single vaccine. How do we explain then the rise in measles last checked in 2008 for Austria, Italy, and Switzerland then? I mean, other places that have been had reported increases that many are saying could be due to a, a byproduct of the media frenzy, and they didn't have the monovalent vaccine shortages. But what you've got to ask yourself is why this problem occurred in the first place. You see, my colleagues and I did not, in publishing in The Lancet, start the the concerns. We did not start the scare about the vaccine. We responded to it. We responded to parents coming to us. The first cases of um, MMR uh, regression, um, autism, were reported in the UK in as early as 1991, 92. 
And this, so this was long before I ever came on the scene. So there were problems that parents were coming to us with these concerns, and we acted upon those concerns. It would have been reprehensible of us to dismiss those concerns and to walk away from them because it was politically inconvenient. What we urged was that further research was done. The media took that to mean that vaccines caused autism, and the media are in large part responsible for what has happened. But I'm afraid that the root cause lies at the lack of adequate safety studies of these vaccines in the first instance. That is the interesting thing. I mean, you've made very clear that, that you want to separate from your work, your research, from saying that, that you've made this claim about cause. But when we catch you in interviews or the subsequent, you know, later 10 years, you've made it very clear in which you say, I'm going to keep championing this cause in which vaccines cause autism. So there's a dichotomy there, and I'm trying to figure out you know, why separate your views from the, the research and saying, listen, there was no causality established, but then come around the other end and say, I'm going to fall on this sword and talk about how the vaccines do cause autism. Why create that dichotomy between your research and your views? Well, you've conflated two issues there. One is the cause, and one is whether there is a causal relationship between vaccines and autism. The cause that I intend to pursue is the rightful and justifiable science to determine whether or not there is a cause, and not to dismiss it out of hand, but it, which is really what's happened. So I am determined to see the science through to its uh, rightful conclusion. I don't know what that conclusion is. It may or may not be that the vaccines are the cause, but I do know that the science has not been done. So I think it's very, very important. And this is one of the things that gets percolated time and time again is that people make assumptions. They um, make these uh, leaps of faith that are not actually something that I have said in the first place. So, um, and that can lead to all kinds of misrepresentation. So let me be quite clear. What I intend to do is to pursue the cause of determining whether there is a relationship between these vaccines and autism or not, and if so, what that relationship is. So when the vaccine people come on Oprah, for instance, how come I don't see you on the show stating your case? It seems that if you stand in the background and let that occur all around you, it pastes onto you. Why aren't you out there stating this? Well, I am, and this is the purpose of writing the book. You see, the problem is that um, during the legal proceedings that I was constrained, I could not speak. And uh, therefore, up until May of this year, I have been unable to put my side of the case in the, in the popular press. On the other side of it, they've been spouting on about this for years, misrepresenting the facts and getting it basically wrong and labeling me as something that I'm not. But I have been constrained up until May of this year to, to prevent that happening. Now the book has come out, the facts are there, and I have gone out into the media, um, to, just as I am now, to actually state what happened, to tell people what actually happened and get the facts straight. We definitely appreciate that you're providing your perspective, and we look through your book. You definitely give a very detailed account of what you say has happened, and you answer a lot of people's questions, a lot of what you think or say are misconceptions. But when we talk about the evidence right now, you mentioned the Cochrane Library, systematic reviews. I mean, so far we're seeing just over the last 10 years flooded information from the CDC, the IOM, the National Academy of Sciences, National Health Service on your end. Cochrane Library, they're all saying that there's no evidence linking MMR vaccines and autism. So you're a researcher, and I know that if you were looking at this in another person's case, you'd probably be saying, man, that's pretty compelling. That's definitely persuasive to me. But 
I'm wondering at what point do you think you might concede that point? Or are you still saying that the work isn't over, that there isn't, the message isn't clear enough? Because it looks pretty clear from our point of view. Well, I think you've got to read the papers in detail. And I, I, I don't mean to be presumptuous about the detail in which you've read the papers. But let me just take one as an example, since you mentioned the CDC. The CDC did a large study looking to see um, whether there was a relationship between age of exposure to MMR vaccine and autism risk. Now, that's a very valuable study because we know that the uh, risks associated with vaccines and natural infection, particularly with measles, are age-related. The younger you are, the greater the risk. What they found was a statistically significant excess risk of autism in those vaccinated at a younger age compared with those vaccinated at an older age. And they found this risk was even higher in children more recently vaccinated when the age of vaccination has been had been reduced down to 12 months. Now, that is compelling. It shows a gradient effect. Dr. Wakefield, we never like to cut a guest off, but we're a live show, and we have to cut you off for time. We hate to do that. We'd like to have you back sometime, perhaps. But our guest today has been Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who is perhaps the best known for his controversial work regarding vaccines and autism. We've been talking to him about his views, his experiences in his new book, Callous Disregard, Autism and Vaccines, The Truth Behind a Tragedy. Dr. Wakefield, thank you. Our listeners will have to read it for themselves. Thank you very much. Sorry to cut you off. No problem. Thank you. So, Matt... I don't know. <laughs> I think we need to read the book. His book comes from a highly defensive posture, yes. which he rightfully should be in uh, right now. I mean, the public and the, the medical community does not look favorably upon Dr. Yes, Wakefield. And he but... sounds so smooth. <laughs> he can All make right. his point. Well, that is going to do it for us today on Second Opinion Live. We've got more great topics and fascinating guests on the horizon, so be sure to tune in to our next show, same time and place. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL, where you'll see my picture on the Sistine Chapel. Give us a shout on Twitter or Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on your iPhone. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed into ReachMDXM160 and keep sending money to Haiti. Thank you for joining us.